Book One, Chapter Six through Ten of Against Jovinianius by Saint Jerome. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. I have perhaps explained his position at too great a length and become tedious to my reader, but I thought it best to draw up in full array against myself all his efforts and to muster all the forces of the enemy with their squadrons and generals, lest after an early victory there should spring up a series of other engagements. I will not therefore do battle with single foes, nor will I be satisfied with skirmishes in which I meet small detachments of my opponents. A battle must be fought with the whole army of the enemy, and the disorderly rabble fighting more like brigands than soldiers must be repulsed by the skill and method of regular warfare. In the front rank I will set the Apostle Paul, and since he is the bravest of generals, will arm him with his own weapons, that is to say, his own statements, for the Corinthians asked many questions about this matter, and the doctor of the Gentiles and the master of the church gave full replies. What he decreed we may regard as the law of Christ speaking in him. At the same time, when we begin to refute the several arguments, I trust the reader will give me his attention even before the apostle speaks, and will not in his eagerness to discuss the most weighty points neglect the premises and rush all at once to the conclusion. Among other things, the Corinthians asked in their letter whether after embracing the faith of Christ they ought to be unmarried, and for the sake of continence put away their wives, and whether believing virgins were at liberty to marry. And again, supposing that one of the two Gentiles believed on Christ, whether the one that believed should leave the one that had believed not. And in case it were allowable to take wives, would the apostle direct that only Christian wives or Gentiles also should be taken? Let us then consider Paul's replies to these inquiries. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but because of fornications, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife her due, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be by consent for a season, that ye may give yourselves unto prayer, and may be together again, that Satan tempts you not because of your inconstancy. But this I say by way of permission, not of commandment. Yet I would that all men were, even as I myself, howbeit each man hath his own gift from God, one after this manner, and another after that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they have not constancy, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Let us turn back to the chief point of evidence. It is good, he says, for a man not to touch a woman. If it is good not to touch a woman, it is bad to touch one, for there is no opposite to goodness but badness. But if it be bad and the evil is pardoned, the reason for the concession is to prevent worse evil. But surely a thing which is only allowed because there may be something worse has only a slight degree of goodness. He would never have added, let each man have his own wife unless he had previously used the words, but because of fornications. Do away with fornication, and he will not say, let each man have his own wife. Just as though one were to lay it down, it is good to feed on wheaten bread and to eat the finest wheat flour and yet to prevent a person pressed by hunger from devouring cow dung, I may allow him to eat barley, 
Does it follow that the wheat will not have its particular purity because such a one prefers barley to excrement? That is naturally good, which does not admit of comparison with what is bad. It is not eclipsed because something else is preferred. At the same time, we must notice the apostle's prudence. He did not say it is good not to have a wife, but it is good not to touch a woman, as though there were danger even in the touch, as though he who touched her would not escape from her who hunteth for the precious life, who causeth the young man's understanding to fly away. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk upon hot coals and his feet not be scorched? As then he who touches fire is instantly burned, so by the mere touch the particular nature of man and woman is perceived, and the difference of sex is understood. Heathen fables relate how Mithras and Erichthonius were begotten of the soil, in stone or earth, by raging lust. Hence it was that our Joseph, because the Egyptian woman wished to touch him, fled from her hands, and, as if he had been bitten by a mad dog and feared the spreading poison, threw away the cloak which she had touched. But because of fornications, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. He did not say, because of fornication, let each man marry a wife. Otherwise, by this excuse, he would have thrown the reins to lust, and whenever a man's wife died, he would have to marry another to prevent fornication. But have his own wife. Let him, he says, have and use his own wife, whom he had before he became a believer, and whom it would have been good not to touch, and when once he became a follower of Christ, to know only as a sister, not as a wife, unless fornication should make it excusable to touch her. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. The whole question here concerns those who are married men. Is it lawful for them to do what our Lord forbade in the gospel, and to put away their wives? Whence it is, the apostle says, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, but inasmuch as he who is once married has no power to abstain, except by mutual consent, and may not reject an unoffending partner, let the husband render unto his wife her due. He bound himself voluntarily that he might be under compulsion to render it, Defraud ye not one the other, except it be by consent for a season, that ye may give yourselves unto prayer. What, I pray you, is the quality of that good thing which hinders prayer, which does not allow the body of Christ to be received? So long as I do the husband's part, I fail in continency. The same apostle in another place commands us to pray always. If we are to pray always, it follows that we must never be in bondage of wedlock, for as often as I render my wife her due, I cannot pray. The Apostle Paul had experience of the bonds of marriage. See how he fashions the church, and what lesson he teaches Christians. Ye husbands, in like manner, dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Give honor unto the woman, as unto the weaker vessel, as being also joint heirs of the grace of life, to the end that your prayers be not hindered. Observe that, as St. Paul before, because in both cases the Spirit is the same, so St. Peter now says that prayers are hindered by the performance of marriage duty. When he says likewise, he challenges the husbands to imitate their wives, because he has already given them commandments. Beholding your chaste conversation, coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of plaiting the hair, 
and of wearing jewels of gold, or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart, and the incorrupt apparel of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. You see what kind of wedlock he enjoins. Husbands and wives are to dwell together according to knowledge, so that they may know what God wishes and desires, and give honor to the weak vessel woman. If we abstain from intercourse, we give honor to our wives. If we do not abstain, it is clear that insult is the opposite of honor. He also tells the wives to let their husbands see their chaste behavior, and the hidden man of the heart in the incorruptible apparel of a meek and quiet spirit. Words truly worthy of an apostle and of Christ's rock. He lays down the law for husbands and wives, condemns outward ornament, while he praises continence, which is the ornament of the inner man, as seen in the incorrupt apparel of a meek and quiet spirit. In effect, he says this, Since your outer man is corrupt, and you have ceased to possess the blessings of incorruption, characteristic of virgins, at least imitate the incorruption of the spirit by subsequent abstinence and what you cannot show in the body exhibit in the mind. For these are the riches, and these are the ornaments of your union which Christ seeks. The words which follow, that ye may give yourselves unto prayer, and may be together again, might lead one to suppose that the apostle was expressing a wish, and not making concession because of the danger of a great fall. He therefore at once adds, lest Satan tempt you for your inconstancy. It is a fine permission which is conveyed in the words, be together again. What it was that he blushed to call by his own name, and thought only better than a temptation of Satan, and the effective incontinence. We take trouble to discuss as if it were obscure, although he has explained his meaning by saying, This I say by way of permission, not by way of command. And do we still hesitate to speak of marriage as a concession to weakness, not a thing commanded, as though second and third marriages were not allowed on the same ground? as though the doors of the church were not opened by repentance, even to fornicators. And what is more, to the incestuous. Take the case of the man who outraged his stepmother. Does not the apostle, after delivering him in his first epistle to the Corinthians, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit might be saved, in the second epistle, take the offender back and strive to prevent a brother from being swallowed up by overmuch grief? The apostle's wish is one thing, his pardon another. If a wish be expressed, it confers a right. If a thing is only called pardonable, we are wrong in using it. If you wish to know the apostle's real mind, you must take in what follows. But I would that all men were as I am. Happy is the man who is like Paul. Fortunate is he who attends to the apostle's command, not to his own concession. This he says, I wish, this I desire that ye be imitators of me, as I am also of Christ, who was a virgin born of a virgin, uncorrupt of her who was uncorrupt. We, because we are men, cannot imitate our Lord's nativity, but we may at least imitate his life. The former was the blessed prerogative of divinity. The latter belongs to our human condition and is part of human effort. I would that all men were like me, that while they are like me, they may also become like Christ, to whom I am like. For he that believeth in Christ ought himself also to walk even as he walked. Howbeit each man hath his own gift from God, one after this manner and another after that. What I wish, he says, is clear. But since in the church there is a diversity of gifts, 
I acquiesce in marriage, lest I should seem to condemn nature. At the same time consider that the gift of virginity is one, that of marriage another. For were the reward the same for the married and for virgins, you would never, after enjoining continence, have said, Each man hath his own gift from God, one after this manner and another after that. Where there is distinction in one particular, there is a diversity also in other points. I grant that even marriage is a gift of God, but between gift and gift there is great diversity. In fact, the Apostle himself, speaking of the same person who had repented of his incestuous conduct, says, So that contrawise ye should rather forgive him and comfort him, and to whom ye forgive anything I forgive also. And that we might not think a man's gift contemptible, he adds, for what I also have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, for your sakes have I forgiven it, in the presence of Christ. There is diversity in the gifts of Christ. Hence it is that by way of type, Joseph has a coat of many colors. And in the 45th Psalm we read, At thy right hand doth stand the queen in a vesture of gold, wrought about with diverse colors. And the Apostle Peter says, as heirs together of the manifold grace of God, where the more expressive Greek word polikitis, i.e. varied, is used. Then come the words, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, It is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they have not constancy, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Having conceded to married persons the enjoyment of wedlock, and pointed out his own wishes, he passes on to the unmarried and to widows, sets before them his own practice for imitation, and calls them happy if they so abide. But if they have not constancy, let them marry, just as he said before, but because of fornications, and lest Satan tempts you because of your incontinency. And he gives a reason for saying, If they have not continency, let them marry, viz., it is better to marry than to burn. The reason why it is better to marry is that it is worse to burn. Let burning lust be absent, and he will not say it is better to marry. The word better always implies a comparison with something worse, not a thing absolutely good and incapable of comparison. It is as though he said, it is better to have one eye than neither. It is better to stand on one foot and to support the rest of the body with a stick than to crawl with broken legs. What do you say, Apostle? I do not believe you when you say, Though I be rude in speech, yet am I not in knowledge, as humility is the source of the sayings, for I am not worthy to be called an apostle, and to me who am the least of the apostles, and as to one born out of due time. So here also we have an utterance of humility. You know the meaning of the language, or you would not quote Epimendus, Neander, and Aratus. When you are discussing continence and virginity, you say, It is good for a man not to touch a woman, and it is good for them if they abide even as I. And I think that this is good by reason of the present distress, and that it is good for a man so to be. When you come to marriage, you do not say it is good to marry, because you cannot then add than to burn. But you say, It is better to marry than to burn. If marriage in itself be good, do not compare it with fire, but simply say, it is good to marry. I suspect the goodness 
of that thing which is forced into the position of being only the lesser of two evils. What I want is not a smaller evil, but a thing absolutely good. So good, the first section has been explained. Let us now come to those which follow. But unto the married I give charge, yea, not I, but the Lord, that the wife depart not from her husband. But if she depart, let her husband remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband leave not his wife. But to the rest say I, not the Lord. If any brother hath an unbelieving wife, and she is content to dwell with him, let him not leave her. And so on to the words, As God hath called each, so let him walk. And so ordain I in all the churches. This passage has no bearing on our present controversy, for he ordains according to the mind of the Lord that accepting the cause of fornication, a wife must not be put away, and that a wife who has been put away may not, so long as her husband lives, be married to another, or at all events, that her duty is to be reconciled to her husband. But in the case of those who are already married at the time of conversion, that is to say, supposing that one of the two were a believer, he enjoins that the believer shall not put away the unbeliever. And after stating his reason, viz., that the unbeliever who is unwilling to leave the believer becomes thereby a candidate for the faith. He commands, on the other hand, that if the unbeliever reject the faithful one on account of the faith of Christ, the believer ought to depart, lest husband or wife be preferred to Christ. In comparison with him, we must hold even life itself cheap. At the present day, many women despising the apostles' command are joined to heathen husbands and prostitute the temples of Christ to idols. They do not understand that they are part of his body, though indeed they are his ribs. The apostle is lenient to the union of unbelievers who, having believing husbands, afterwards come to believe in Christ. He does not extend this indulgence to those women who, although Christians, have been married to heathen husbands. To these elsewhere he says, Be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship have righteousness and iniquity? Or what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what portion hath a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement hath a temple of God with idols? For we are a temple of the living God. Although I know that crowds of matrons will be furious against me, although I know that just as they have shamelessly despised the Lord, so they will rave at me, who am but a flea and the least of Christians, yet I will speak out what I think. I will say what the apostle has taught me, that they are not on the side of righteousness, but of iniquity, not of light, but of darkness, that they do not belong to Christ, but Belial, that they are not temples of the living God, but shrines and idols of the dead. And if you wish to see more clearly how utterly unlawful it is for a Christian woman to marry a Gentile, Consider what the same apostle says. A wife is bound for so long time as her husband liveth. But if a husband be dead, she is free to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord, that is, to a Christian. He who allows second and third marriages in the Lord forbids first marriages with the Gentile. Once Abraham also makes his servant swear upon his thigh, that is, on Christ, who was to spring from his seed, that he would not bring an alien born as a wife for his son Isaac. And Ezra checked an offense of this kind against God by making his countrymen put away their wives. And the prophet Malachi thus speaks, 
Judah hath dealt treacherously, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loveth, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. The Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, him that teacheth, and him that learneth, out of the tents of Jacob, and him that offers an offering unto the Lord of hosts. I have said this, that they who compare marriage with virginity may at least know that such marriages as these are on a lower level than bigamy and triamy. End of Book 1, Chapters 6-10